grateful for a stirring time of worship and for the ministry of the worship team. And uh, for us to be together at this time every Sunday, I pray, what can I do to help my people? What can I do to empower them? What can I do to share a little bit of myself, to give myself away? And truthfully, it's not me that I'm giving. Although there's, there's an expenditure of energy, it's the gospel. And it's the story of Jesus. And today, I hope that I can give you the story of Jesus. I hope I can share something that will encourage and strengthen something that will empower. So we've been in this series called Hashtag Daniel Plan. The Daniel Plan series is about change. It's about internal change, but not just that, it's also about outward change. And if I speak strictly, the Daniel Plan is this thing where you're supposed to go only on a vegetable diet. It involves exercise. It involves a really harsh uh, regimen. We're not going to impose that on anybody, um, but uh, we are in a new year. This is a great chance for us to activate those New Year's resolutions, really make a change for good, really make a change for good. So here's the thing. How do you make a change? Think for yourself, what is the thing that you most uh, dislike about yourself or that you are most aware needs to go in 2018? And I can tell you that no amount of me um, telling you that you need to change, no amount of me preaching, I'm very aware of my limitation, the limitation of the medium. The limitation of the medium, and for those of you that are teachers here, you know that. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can teach the material, but only unless the person themselves is motivated will anything really happen. And that's where we started off this series. You can listen to the podcast. It's been updated as we started off this series talking about motivation. Because I can't motivate you. No amount of my preaching, and I know this, I know the limitation. The Spirit must come. Healing must occur. We talked about that as well. And motivation flips. And all of a sudden you realize, I actually do want to make a change. Um, for me, I am not an avid, but I am a, I, I am a regular runner. I, I run regularly. I do about 10 miles a week. But ever since the weather has been up and down, I hear that the groundhog saw his shadow and went back in his hole and all that business, and we have winter for another six weeks. Ever since it's been a cold winter here in Houston, I just could not find that extra, um, that extra motivation to get out there in the cold, to run. That motivation and that, that little thing that we need to switch us from no to go, no to go, that's a missing link, that's an important piece. So the Holy Spirit, we talked about that. Last week, last week we talked about the physical and the spiritual connection. And so I started out talking about motivation, but then I took us to this place where I said, listen, your spirit and your body are symbiotically connected. And if you are paying attention to your spirit but ignoring your body, you're not going to be balanced. That disharmony is going to lead to fracture within yourself. Or if you're all about, you know, paying attention to your body and you take care of your, you do all this, but you don't pay attention to your spirit soul-killing things, soul-killing behaviors, then you are once again a fractured person. The symbiotic connection, the physical and the spirit, I had to make a case last Sunday that there is a connection, and I shared a little bit of my own story about the depression I experienced. I had to make a case 
Because in order to believe, in order to talk about a physical spiritual connection, we have to believe that such a thing actually does exist. There is a physical and a spiritual connection. We are not just, in the end, meant to just, just, or, uh, just fly away. You know, it's like a conversation with somebody, you know, a super spiritual person, and they're like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I'm feeling so down. Well, have you, have you, have you had a nap lately? Or... Uh, no, I don't need a nap. I don't sleep. I'm on fire for Jesus, and I'm, I'm go, go, go. Well, when was, the, when was the last time you ate? Food, who needs food? So you can see this fracturing. You can see this disconnect. So today what I'm going to talk about is the physical spiritual connection part two. I want to continue this discussion talking about this connection between the physical and the spiritual, but today I want to offer some practical guidelines, some practical thoughts and insights about living a life that is holistically spiritual, but also physical. Living a life that is holistically spiritual, but also physical. Because if there is no self-care, no matter how on fire for Jesus you are, there is, you don't have the capacity to go very long. Show me anybody that's on fire for Jesus, but does not take care of themselves. I'll show you somebody that's got three months left. Show me somebody that takes care of their body but doesn't take care of their soul. I'll show you somebody that doesn't have long for this earth. And so today what I'm going to talk about, this practical connection, in particular this practical aspect to the physical spiritual connection, I'm going to talk about the spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline, the practical application of fasting, fasting. And I've spoken about this in the past. Those of you who've heard me talk about this, you know that when I talk about fasting, it's not just always food. Fasting can also be uh, media. It can be input of devices and entertainment. Fasting can involve um, video games or overwork. Or Fasting doesn't have to be strictly food. But here's the thing. Listen carefully to this. Here's the thing. We're talking about the physical spiritual connection. We're talking about the physical spiritual connection. So please, friends, when Pastor Wayne says fast, you can fast anything. Yeah, I'm going to fast watching Stranger Things on television. I'm just going to fast that for a season. And don't take two aspirin when really what your physical body needs is triage. You hear what I'm saying? Don't take an ibuprofen when really what you need, what your physical body needs is triage. And so three things to fast today, and we need to take fasting seriously. Three things to fast. The first thing, first fill in the blank, the first thing that we could start doing less with in our life, the first thing that we could start weaning ourselves off, taking off our dependency is, number one, that which kills the spirit. That which kills the spirit. Now, here's the thing. Nobody knowingly kills themselves. Nobody knowingly kills their spirit. It always starts off with little sips around the edges. It always starts off with little dabblings. You know, you have the proverbial frog that dips his toe in the hot water. Ooh, that's hot, but I like it. And he gets in, and he sits in that hot tub, and he soaks and then slowly you turn the heat up. That which kills the spirit, these are things 
These are things that we don't run headlong into. We oftentimes kind of just back away from the good little by little, get closer and closer to the edge. We just kind of see how far we can look over and see how deep the hole goes. That which kills the spirit. I want to read a passage to you, Psalm 32, and show you how certain things that we do can actually kill our spirit and even our, our bodies. You can see the connection. Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Doctors in the audience, I wonder if you've ever seen this, if, if, you've, if you believe that there is a physical, spiritual connection. There might be a patient that repeatedly comes in, and you're doing everything you can help this person, but you realize that there is a lot more underlying. There's a lot more that's not scientifically or empirically observable or verifiable. This is something spiritual. One of my mentors, um, a man who I speak regularly with in this city, uh, is an older gentleman. He's, he's in his 60s, and he's a doctor. And we were having a conversation. We were having a conversation about, about, about physical health. And he was telling me with, from his own professional opinion that there are underlying things, oftentimes, things that are inexplainable by science, unexplainable by science, but have at their root soul-killing things like resentment, resentment, unforgiveness in particular. And these things, these, these things that, that, that are in our souls affect our bodies. But you notice that what this is talking about here in particular is when I kept silent about my sin. When I kept silent about my sin. So what we're essentially talking about here is a moral issue. It's a moral issue. And I know that sin and pointing out sin, and I'm not going to point out one sin or anybody's sin. That's not where, where I'm going with this. Because you know yourself. You know in your own conscience the things that make you feel like you're, the things that make you feel like you're wasting away. The things that within your own conscience make you feel like your vitality is drained. What is in you that is draining your, your body? That's just draining your spirit. What is in you that just drains you? Now, there is this thing called, um, uh, what's the word? Tolerance. Tolerance. That's what happens with the phenomenon of the frog. As the frog dips his toe in the hot water, he gets adjusted to it. Then he can take a little bit more, and then he sits in, and then he can take more and more heat. Tolerance. And so what happens is our bodies actually at first begin to build a tolerance to the things that pollute our souls. We do things and we build a tolerance and what happens is we need more. We like more. But in the process, our consciences become deadened, desensitized, desensitized because we're tolerant. We're tolerant to this thing. Friends, um, what are the things that deaden our consciences? What are the things that kill our spirits? What are the things that we've 
built up a tolerance that we've dabbled in so much that we've gotten to the point where we're not even sensitive whether it's right or wrong anymore. Remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about this process of, uh, of uh, uh, cognition, cognition following volition. Because in the end, when we do the thing that we shouldn't do, we rationalize it. Tolerance, we get used to it, but along with it, we begin to rationalize. We begin to rationalize and say, it's not a big deal. What's the big deal that I'm just kind of dabbling? What's the big deal that I'm just kind of playing with this thing a little bit? And our consciences gradually become less and less and less sensitive. So this first heading is really about getting our consciences sensitive again. Are you sensitive to the good and to the bad in the world? There is a statement that's in your bulletin that I think conveys this quite well. It's by Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement, 1800s. And young John Wesley asked his mother, Mom, what, what, how do I know if something is a sin? How do I know if something is not good for me? How do I know if something is an offense to God? And she answered with these words, If you would judge of the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of pleasure. In other words, if you want to know the difference between whether something is good for you or not, then take this simple rule. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God, whatever takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. I recently saw this movie. Uh, I, won't, I won't spoil it or give it away, but there was this character um, who was obsessed with herself. She was always taking selfies. She was obsessed with her, literally her own image. And early on in the movie, she loses her phone. She loses her phone, and in the first half of the movie, she's lamenting this. She's really struggling. How do you live without a phone? I can't, I can't seem to survive without my phone. And by the end of the movie, the whole movie and the whole storyline had gone by, no phone, and she realizes, this is actually really great. I feel free. I feel free. I'm sensitive again to the world. My conscience is no longer impaired. I'm sensitive, I feel free, and I'm able to see a lot more things a lot more clearly. And so soul-killing behaviors, and I'm not saying phones are evil. I'm not saying phones and devices are evil, but I am using this analogy to, and sometimes actually the scientists are recognizing, we're seeing more and more reports coming out that there are more teenagers getting depressed um, one of the culprits seems to be overuse of devices. But the point is there are things that we use repeatedly that we have to wean ourselves off of. We have to wean ourselves off of these things because they kill our spirits and we don't even realize it. So what kills your soul? What are the things, what are the soul-killing behaviors, the things that you can do without, the things that morally, morally are just wrong? 
What are the things that you know you shouldn't be doing, but that you tolerate? Or, like I said, with our cognition, we, 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 we just kind of legitimate it. We say it's not a big deal. What are the things that we have given ourselves permission to do that really is an offense to God? What are the things that we're gradually cooking ourselves in our own pot? These are things that not only do we have to fast, but it's going to take some surgery. These are things we're going to have to wean ourselves off of. And so that's the first piece, soul-killing behaviors, things that kill the spirit, that deaden the conscience, that take off the relish of spiritual things. Sin. You know, I know that these days there's a movement in some church, in some Christian circles to not really make a big deal about sin, to not talk about it, to not kind of, you know, what are we so obsessed with sin? And I'm not pointing out one particular sin or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about our own consciences. We all know the difference between good and wrong. And so I, for one, I don't buy it. I'm not going to go to the extreme where I have to point out and call things out. But I will say that sin is a very real thing. Don't believe it when you hear it's not a big deal because these are the things that gradually kill our souls. We move on to the second heading. What else can we fast? So there's sin. That's obvious. I mean, duh. Fasting sin, that makes no sense. I mean, obviously, we just have to kind of stop doing it. But here's a stepping stone. Here's a stepping pathway to that objective. And the second, the second thing to fast are numbing behaviors. Numbing behaviors. And by numbing behaviors, I'm talking about things that are not intrinsically bad. Things that are not bad, they're not sin. If the first one was moral in nature, the second one is not moral. Things, for example, like our devices, our phones... The thing about a phone is this is, the, this is the most powerful tool that I'm carrying on my body right now. It's an incredibly powerful tool. Communication happens through this. All of my scheduling, um, all of my um, video games that are so near and dear. Just kidding. Video games are not important to me. But all of my reminders, all of the things that I need in order to function as a human being. So it's a necessary, it's not really an ethical, ethical issue. Unless you know what it's like to numb out with your device, especially at 11.30 p.m. at night, to numb out with your device, and then you can't sleep after that. There's something about the bright screens. How about sports? I know today's Super Bowl Sunday. Sports is something that I think not only in, in viewing sports in particular, playing sports, that, that, that aside, but viewing sports is something that is, I think, a good social pastime. Something that's healthy, you can't attach a moral value to it. Or how about a good meal, the enjoyment of food? The enjoyment of food, I like to sit down, especially on a Friday night with my family, we have a good meal, a glass of wine. Are these things intrinsically bad? But can these things be used to numb out, to numb ourselves where I don't want to feel, I don't want to kind of experience the hardships of life, and so I'm going to eat, or I'm going to zone out and play another game of whatever. 
solitaire. Or, or I'm going to follow sports because I can't really face the real world. There's a saying, it's in your bulletin, by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill was an English revivalist, and he would say these kind of strong things like this. He said, entertainment, entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. Entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. What a statement. Does that mean entertainment is bad? I don't think entertainment is bad. I like entertainment. But the thing is, entertainment, when it becomes the only source of joy in our lives, we lose joy itself. When entertainment, whether it's the enjoyment of sweets or pleasure or things to, uh, to, to titillate us or to excite us, when that becomes our source of joy, we've lost the ability to tap in to joys that are God-made and God-given. Joy. C.S. Lewis writes a book called Surprised by Joy. And I don't think he was talking about the release of the new Xbox game. Whoa, I'm so surprised. This is joy. I don't think that's what he had in mind. He was a bit of a, he was a, bit of a Luddite, um, which is somebody that kind of resisted technology. And I think that actually made him closer to God. It made him closer to God. Surprised by joy, what he was talking about is discovering that there is a joy that's, that's metaphysical, it's, be, it's above us, it's divine. Surprised by joy, but we cannot be surprised by joy. Why? Because we're numb, we're numbed out. We're numbed out by entertainment, the substitute for joy. Let me read you a passage that I think illustrates this well. Behaviors that are not bad, but that can be used repeatedly to numb us out. It is the story of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the prelude to David's biggest mistake of his career. It's the great fall of David when he saw Bathsheba on the roof, and then he took her as his own and killed her husband, and that whole affair, that whole affair. Where did it begin? With numbing behaviors with numbing behaviors. Listen to this in 2 Samuel 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And you can see blood splattering and swords and these guys, <sighs> hulking guys and all this violence. But in the midst of it, you have this background story. David stayed in Jerusalem. David stayed in Jerusalem. In fact, when you read chapter 11, verse 1, when you read verse 1, there's an interesting feature there in your English translations. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. That phrase, to battle, is italicized. And I'm going to teach you about this, about translations. Whenever you're reading your Bible, whether it's the Old or the New Testament, and you see words italicized, there is a reason for that. The reason words are italicized in your Bible is because those words to battle are not in the actual original language. They are not present at all. But the story and the way the context speaks presumes so strongly that it's fair to include those words. It is implied very strongly, but it's just not literally present. In other words, in the original Hebrew, what it reads in verse 1 is, it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out 
get out. David, get out of the house. David, move yourself. Get out. So more than talking about this battle, I mean, we can talk about to battle and all that business, but more than anything, it's saying get out. And I think it is the author's assessment that the first numbing behavior, the first place David went wrong and ended up having an affair was he was lounging around in the house in his PJs. Get out. Get out is the first step. It's quite obvious. Get out. Many commentators recognize this connection. The author is saying that David, instead of getting out, lounged around. And of course, when evening came, David got up from... Let me back up. Here's the thing. Is it bad that David said, guys, I think I need a vacation? Is it bad that David, already an accomplished warrior, said, I'd like to sit this one out? Is that bad? No, David, you have to fight every single battle. You have to be in front of the, of the, of the, of the army every single war. You, you, know, you have to show up every single Sunday. Is it bad for him to say, guys, I really need... It's not bad. It's not, there's nothing wrong. And test me on this. Look into the Old Testament, in the, in the book of the law, in the Pentateuch. Are, are there any laws that actually forbid kings from staying home when there's a war going on? I, I don't know, but I'd be willing to be corrected. But what I do know, it says in the Old Testament, in the book of the law, is it talks about rest. It talks about sabbatical. It talks about the year of Jubilee. So I think it's quite fair. In fact, you might even say, no, it's biblical for me to stay home. I need rest. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with me instead of going to work, just staying home. There's nothing wrong with me instead of going to look for a way out of my predicament. There's nothing wrong. I can just kind of, there's nothing wrong with it. But at the same time, it was the beginning. You see, falling into headlong sin oftentimes is not a straight path where we go straight for. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's this kind of, you know, tiptoeing around and just loafing around in the house. Loafing around the house. And then what does he do next after loafing around the house? When evening came, David got up from his bed at 2 a.m. <laughs> he says, I just kind of want to, you know, it's my roof. And he walks around the roof of his house. He's walking around the roof of his house. Nothing wrong with that. It's his house. I can walk on the roof of my house at 2 in the morning. People watching from on top of my house to see what's going on in that window. Oh, there's nothing wrong with people watching. And he's on his roof at night, and he sees a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And we don't know exactly. Uh, I think it's, it's possible that this, uh, the bathing was not a full-fledged, kind of like in a bathtub and all that. It might have been something a little bit more discreet. But either way, what is he doing in the middle of the night, walking around on top of his house, staring at people? Numbing behaviors, numbing behaviors. I can't sleep. I'm just going to go and walk around, turn on the tube. Numbing behaviors. I'm just doing some people watching. Numbing behaviors. I'm not at my post. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. If I can give some practical advice here. Catch a sin before you sin. 
catch your vulnerability before you are vulnerable. Know that I am not in a good place. I think I am prone to whatever the list of things are. Catch it before you do it. Make a plan so that you don't have to do that. I really am, I don't know, I really have a craving for macaroni and cheese, and I have an addiction to that, and I eat that. Catch yourself. I I need cheese. I'm craving cheese, so I am deliberately not going to go down that aisle. Catch yourself. It's silly. Or I'm going to avoid the supermarket today because I know the first thing I'm going to look for is cheese. Catch yourself before you're even vulnerable. This is the beginning. This is the way to this is the way to avoid. This is the way to avoid. This is the path of fasting, spiritual fasting. Recognizing not just number 1 the things that kill our spirits, but number 2 the numbing behaviors. Being aware. Being aware that I'm doing things, that I'm checking out. The awareness of those things will save us from it will save us from the, 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 the grosser acting outs. The third and the last thing for us to work on. So first, we're working on just straight up the moral issue, sin. Secondly, we're working on the numbing behaviors, the things that lead to sin. Third, if the first was, was the really bad and the second was not so bad, What we're talking about now is fasting the good for the great. And what we're talking about here is there are good things in life, but aspiring for the great things in life. Not just being content with the good, but aspiring to the great. Young people, youth group, I'd like you to hear some of these words. These were words that captured me when I was in my early 20s. Samuel Rutherford once said, What a glorious yoke are youth and grace, Christ and a young man or a woman. You may not know this now. You might know it soon. But when Christ captures your heart, young man, young woman, and you realize that you are free, and you realize that you can fly. (laughs) There's a Key and Peele skit about this. I think it was Key and Peele. You can't fly, but you feel that your soul is soaring. You feel that you know now that you can plumb the depths of God's grace. It's a glorious yoke, youth and grace. There's another quote by Phillips Brooks. Your soul is stuffed with small things. There's no room for the great. And so in this third and last heading, what we're aspiring for is not just good enough, but the great. We're aspiring for the great. And with this, I'm going to conclude with Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is the story of Jesus and His disciples and fasting. Mark chapter 2, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were fasting. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast, but you guys don't? How come you guys don't fast? And this is during Jesus' ministry in his lifetime. All the, other, all the other religious people, they're like practicing this hardcore religion, whereas Jesus and his buddies and his disciples, they're living it up. And they're saying, how come you don't fast? How come you're not more serious about your religion? 
How come you're not more serious about things like sin and all this stuff? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. In verse 19, when the groom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom, in other words, the best men and so on and so forth, they can't fast, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the groom is taken away from them, then they will fast. So Jesus is talking about grooms. He's talking about weddings. Who's the bridegroom? Who is he speaking about here? When Jesus talks about the groom, who is he referring to? He's referring to himself. He is the groom. He is the groom at the wedding. And so the occasion here is a wedding. What do you do at a wedding? What do you do at a wedding? We go, go to a wedding, you sit down. Hey, there's a great meal. I'm fasting. I'm not going to eat. What are you, crazy? It's a wedding. Eat. I'm not going to eat. I'm serious. I love Jesus. and I'm not going to eat at all. No, you eat. Why? Because Jesus is here. You eat because the groom is here. In other words, the guiding principle Jesus is saying for fasting is whether the presence of God is in the house or not. Now, in a very realistic, in a very real historical sense, Jesus is saying, I'm here. Why are we fasting? This is a time not for fasting, but stick an E in front of the A. You're feasting. This is a time for feasting. The presence of God is here. When I am taken away, historically taken away, then you'll fast. And so the guiding principle is the presence of God. I think we can take this in our own lives today as well. In a spiritual sense, we can apply this. When we know that the presence of God in our lives is near and dear and warm, we're feasting on His presence. But when you get to a season of your life where you find, I'm dry, I don't feel close to God, I don't feel like I'm, I'm I, don't, I don't feel close, I, don't, I feel my spirit shriveling up, the presence is missing, that's when you fast. That's when you fast. Pastor, I feel far from God. I feel far from God. Well, tell me about your habits. What do you do every night before you go to sleep? Well, I watch about three hours of Netflix and I've been binge watching. All right, tell me about your devotional habits. And uh, devotional, not really existent, okay? Tell me about your eating habits. Tell me about your reading habits or what you're doing at work. I know when I'm at work, I surf the internet and I play solitaire. And... Sounds like you need some fasting. Sounds like you've compromised. You know, I'm a Christian. I'm fine. But it sounds like you've allowed, you've compromised the, you, you, the great for the good. You're content. The presence is missing. Why do we fast, friends? We fast because not, not to be, not to, not, we don't fast out of penance or out of punishment. Or We fast because we don't feel the presence enough. We fast because of the missing presence of God in our lives. What Jesus is saying here is this new type of religion, this Christianity, this way, this way that I'm bringing, that ushering in, this is not going to be founded upon performance or rules. It's going to be founded upon the presence. Friends, what I'm saying in conclusion is this. Is the presence of God in your life in exceeding measure? Do you find that you can go to your prayers and your heart is tender? Do you find that when you're reading spiritual material or when you're reading Scripture that the tears come more readily than they usually do? 
Do you find that you're experiencing a special nearness? The presence is there. But do you find that there, there is a, there, you, yes, I am dry. Do you find that, yes, I am having, I feel like I'm hitting a ceiling and I can't seem to get through to God. Maybe I'm just going through a dark night of the soul. Maybe you're just watching too much Netflix. Fasting, friends. Fasting is us saying, God, I'm not eating because there's something more important than food right now. My spirit is starving while my belly is big, my spirit is dying. While I'm entertained out of the wazoo, my spirit is parched, shriveled, dead. But I know exactly what's going on in Game of Thrones. My spirit is dead. And I'm going to fast those things because there's something more important than the latest killer app, there's something more important than me having to have my appetite filled. There's something more important than the fleeting and temporary pleasure of, of this or that. There's something more important, and that is me feasting on your presence. Feasting on your presence. I am fasting. I'm depriving myself of that pleasure, whatever it is, so that I can know the highest pleasure. Because there is a higher pleasure. I know it. I believe it. How can I convey this? Are you bored with God? Fast. Have you said, I've known everything there is about to know about the Christian religion? Fast. Say, God's presence doesn't thrill me anymore. Fast. I don't love Jesus or I don't feel like I am loving Him the way I want to at this age, at this time in my life. Fast. And I will say in closing that He will reward you. I believe He will reward your desire with greater presence, greater delight, greater closeness. He will bring you to deep places, dark places possibly. But He will set your heart back on fire. And even in the middle of a cold winter, your spirit will be a furnace, warm, deep. It will burn like coal, long, fruitful, producing energy, life. There are greater things don't be satisfied with the good. To follow Christ, young people, is to follow greatness, is to pursue greatness, true greatness. There is no one greater than Christ, and I don't say that dogmatically. Because here's a dude that had everything going for him and he sacrificed it all. That's ultimate humility. There is no greatness comparable to that of Christ. Don't be settled with the good. Pursue the great. 
Pursue Christ. Pursue his presence. I'm going to recap one last time. Fast that which kills the spirit. Fast the numbing behaviors. Fast the good for the great. Let's pray. Just want to invite you as the worship team plays to just respond back to God. Guys, things that you enjoy, I'm not saying they're bad, right? I'm not saying they're bad. Things that you like to do, I'm not trying to make you martyrs or I'm not even trying to make you, you know, suffer or something unnecessarily. If you enjoy it and it's good for you, listen, do it. But if you find that it's also leading to other things, if you find that it's... it's taking off your relish of spiritual things. If you find that, you know, I can do without that, really? Do I need that? Do I need all these, do I need all these peripheral things, these extra things? That which is obscuring your sense of God, impairing the tenderness of conscience, maybe those are the things that we need to do without in 2018. Lord, show us, we pray. See if the Lord brings to your mind at this time that one thing. See if you can identify what it is.
we're grateful for this still moment this quiet time to reflect Lord there are things in our lives that we know we cannot play around with any longer cannot compromise with we know that there are things in our lives that you've given us for pleasure but we've used in a little bit bit excessively most of all Lord we miss you we miss your presence we miss the, the, the relish of spiritual things we miss the tenderness of the speakings. We miss hearing your voice. We miss the closeness. We miss the intimacy. We know that this is something that as we grew older, we grew more cynical about. Forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive us for that. We pray that you would give us faith that is pure once again. Show us the steps forward, Lord. Trade the good and receive the great. Help us to see you, Lord, once again. We pray, Lord, help us to make the choices that will enable us to see you and to pray all this in the name of Jesus. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.